63, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. We're going to journey through chapter 4 together, and I. this book is a book of mixed blessings. It, it, I really enjoy it because it makes me think, and it keeps us from putting everything in nice, tidy little boxes. Solomon keeps us moving along as he takes us through his argument, but as he moves into chapters 4 through 10, he's going to deal with the issue of facing reality. And we're going to look at life's hardships and life's companions this morning. And we're going to look at the first three verses, but primarily we're going to spend our time in verse 1. So we're not going too far this morning. But as I think through this book, there's so many different ways in which we can apply it to our life. There's so many things that he touches upon. And it doesn't matter who we encounter in life, this book is relevant for anyone that we might encounter in the pathways of life, whether they're a secularist, humanist, whether they're a rationalist, whether they're a materialist. Solomon addresses all of these issues, whether we start from ourselves and reason out to try and understand meaning and purpose in life, or whether we look at the things around us, whatever it may be, Solomon takes us on a journey through all of these aspects of life, and he shows us that really the only one that can satisfy us is God and God alone. But as we come into this passage, I wanted to talk a little bit about the issue of moral outrage and the quest for power because he's going to address this issue as he deals with oppression and he's going to talk about the oppressors that have power on their side and I sent this meditation of mine to my oldest son to, to review it for me and give me his thoughts on it but I came across a statement by William Penn he said if men will not be governed by God they will be ruled by tyrants and it caused me to think about the issue of moral outrage. It is the rage. I mean, one person has described this as the fact that we live in the age of rage. That people are constantly crying out about things. That there is an overwhelming number of people who are outraged by social and political issues and they make it known on social media and everyone is hearing about it. We find that this outrage presupposes the concept of justice, though. When we watch these things around us, we need to be looking for opportunities in which we can witness to the world, and they give us so much to go on. When they start crying out for justice, there is an understanding that there is this concept that lies within all of us. In other words, there is a universal desire for justice in the human soul, regardless of where you're born, wherever we go in the world, this is something that we all desire. In other words, it's intuitive. It is something that is planted within us. It isn't something that we gain by being taught or it is something that we draw from the outside in. It is something that arises within us. In other words, there is this universal law that has been implanted in each one of us and we know who is the one who implanted that law. We are surrounded by people who cry out, that's not right, that's not fair, this isn't just, this isn't good, this is evil, this is wrong. And when they do that, they're acknowledging something far greater than they're willing to acknowledge the fact that there is a God, that there is a designer behind all of this. 
In other words, a desire for justice points to the reality of God. We understand for moral outrage, it is absurd. If somehow you look at morality as a relative thing, it's an absurdity then to cry out and be upset about this. Either there is an objective right or wrong, or it is mere personal preference. And if it is merely personal preference, then how can you express moral outrage by someone who's merely expressing their own preference? It is an absurdity, but we're surrounded by this in the world today. So then comes an if-then thought then. If there is no objective universal morality that transcends human opinion, then to be consistent, all that life left in life is power and the desire to impose our preferences upon others. And this is what Solomon is going to address, but this is what we find, and we're going to find in our world more and more oppression is going to come because more and more are seeking this power to express and to manifest their own ideas and desires and wants. So Solomon, as he takes us into chapter 4, he's going to talk about life's hardships and life's companions or the lack thereof. And he begins with chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is connected with a larger whole, so we have to know the context. From 4.1 all the way into chapter 10, verse 20, this resembles the book of Proverbs. It's filled with what we call epigrams that deal with various aspects of life. And when you read chapter 4 at the beginning, it might seem like it's completely disconnected. as a series of things that are taught, but there's no relationship to them at all. We are going to see that there is an intimate relationship with all of these sections. This also argues for a Psalmonic authorship, but chapter 4, he's going to confront a series of major problems that we face in everyday life under the sun. And keep this in mind, he is talking about those things that are under the sun. Not under heaven, but under the sun. This helps us understand the statement that he makes in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. It's a pretty harsh statement that Solomon makes, but when we understand the perspective he has in which he makes it, it is understandable, but it is still harsh. So the preacher, he observes a series of problems and literally says this in the Hebrew, I have turned my mind and I observe these things. And several things he observed. He says, I observed oppression, 4, 1 through 3. I observed jealousy, 4, 4 through 6. I observed loneliness, 4, 7 through 12. And I observed politics, 4, 13 through 16. There's some great thoughts in this chapter. One of the things that, that we might find ourselves confronted with as we walk through chapter 4 together is the idea of the American dream. Solomon is going to step on a lot of toes through this chapter, but there are some powerful truths he lays out for us. It's interesting that as you read through chapter 4, you'll see that the number 2 plays a major role in this chapter. It occurs eight times in this chapter. Sometimes it's translated by the word both in English or dependent or another or second, but it is the word to. And we find it over and over again. Along with the word to, we have the word one. This occurs five times in this chapter. It's implied in verse six. Our NASB is translated this way. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor. The word really is literally a handful. It's a single construct, but the idea is one. So all the way through here, there is the focus on two, but then there's the reference to one. And three is mentioned only once in verse 12, where Solomon says this, three is better than two, and it is better than one. 
So these are the words that stand out in this chapter, and there is a connection that Solomon makes with all of this. One of the things we need to understand is that in each of these episodes, these epigrams he lays out, there is an issue of isolation. There's a lack of companionship or a lack of human assistance. We see that there is no comforter in verse 1. Twice this is mentioned about those who are oppressed. Twice he says they have no one to comfort them. There is the rivalry that destroys human relationships, verse 4. The seeking after things, the gaining. You have the man who has no one with him in verse 8. There is a certain man without dependent, having neither son nor a brother. He has nothing, no one to walk with him through life. And therefore, what is it that he gains with all the labor that he produces in his life and all the things that he seeks to achieve when he can't share it with anybody? There is the reference to the two are better than one, three are better than two, verses 9 through 12, and then kings who become isolated, verses 13 through 16. So there is a relationship that starts to formulate with these sections of chapter 4. And we need to see them if we're going to understand the message that Solomon has for us. But we see life's hardship and perplexities, the companionship it demands, but also the isolation it exhibits. Whether he talks about poverty, wealth, human hardships, the limits of wisdom, the impact of foolishness, each of them is problematic. But the preacher, along with the psalmist, is going to exhort us in the fact that God is present and we must put our faith and trust in Him. Psalms 146 verse 7 says this, The Lord executes justice for the oppressed, He gives food to the hungry, and the Lord sets the prisoners free. This is not no bail reform here. This is about redemption. So verses 4, 1 through 3, if you will with me, he is going to talk about the unrelieved oppression. And this is where we're going to spend our time is in verse 1. And there's a lot that Solomon lays out here for us. But it's important because he begins on the issue of power. He is going to end on the issue of power as he talks about the king and his kingdom. But he wants to address the issue of oppression. Man's inhumanity to man. We see this all around us. We face it all the time. We see it in the cities and it's going to come our way if we haven't already started to experience it yet. It's going to overflow its banks in every city and it's going to spread throughout the rest of the land if something is not done about man's sin. We saw last week in chapter 8 that if something is not immediately done for man's sin and the consequences aren't immediate, that sin will accelerate and it will increase. It's inevitable. If there is no restraint, man can be like a beast, and he will live and act like a beast, and he will become inhuman as he treats his fellow man. So we see the widespread misery of, caused by injustice and cruelty, but underlying this, there is a theme that is going to emerge, and it is the issue of the power complex. He begins with the issue of power, he ends on the issue of power, and we're going to see this as a thread that runs through this and builds this up. But Solomon has already prepared us for this. Chapter 3, verse 16. Notice how he dealt with the issue of injustice. He says, I have seen under the sun, chapter 3, verse 16, I've seen it under the sun, the place for justice, there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. In other words, we went to the courts, and you're supposed to find justice there, but all I found was wickedness. And he acknowledged the just injustice that happens. Now he's going to look at the world around him. He's going to say, I see it everywhere. I see it in everything, not only in the courts, but I also see it in the marketplace. I see it on the streets. 
I see oppression everywhere I look. He acknowledges the fact that God is going to redress those who are suffered, that, that suffer under this injustice in chapter 3, verse 17. There is a time for judgment and it is going to come. He understands the fact that those who are low and high, both, they face the same fact that they are both mortals. They are going to face death. And at the same time, he helps us to understand and he realizes the fact that some have a hard time accepting the gift of life from God day by day and enjoying those things because they are suffering from oppression. Sometimes when we're under injustice and we are suffering oppression, it is hard for us to see the good things of God, to see the things that he provides for us. Some of us look at our life and we think, well, I have a pretty settled station in life. I'm not really ruffled. I, the only way that the world impacts me is when I watch the news, but it really hasn't crept into my world yet. But Solomon is going to help us understand the fact that even the simple ways of life are going to be impacted by those who rule. The more that they misuse their power, it isn't going to be just seen in the cities where the metropolis is and the cosmopolitan areas, but we're going to find it in the rural areas. We're going to find it out on the farms. We're going to find it everywhere if it persists. And Solomon helps us to see the end of all of this. The interesting thing is that he addresses the oppression. He views it personally. He goes to different places and variety of experiences. He looks at all of these things and his conclusion is that life isn't just merely monotonous. There are problems that come and we don't know what each day brings. This is why it's interesting in Proverbs 27.1. Solomon himself writes this. Do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You have no idea what you're going to face the next day. You make your plans. You have your calendar. You plot the day out and you think you know what's going to come, but Solomon says you don't know what's going to happen the next day. You can find yourself suffering this kind of injustice. Will you see the goodness of God in the midst of this, or will you give way to the oppression that is around you? It's interesting to me that when he views this oppression, he views it with passion. And there's several ways he helps us see this. First, he refers to it as oppression three times here. He uses the word behold, notice in verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of those oppressed. In other words, this word hene in Hebrew is to draw our attention to the thing that he is speaking of. He wants us to understand that this was a terrible thing. He saw the tears of these people. He saw them receiving no comfort. There was great emotional distress for them in the situation and there was no relief for them at all. There was no one to comfort them. And twice he says this. Not only that, but we can see how deeply Solomon was moved by this by what he says in verses 2 and 3. I congratulated those who are already dead. Why? Because they're not in this world seeing this injustice and this evil anymore. They don't have to face it. This shows us how strongly he looks upon this oppression and the injustice that he sees and he wants to do something about it but he knows that he cannot conquer it all. This is a warning for us and an exhortation that when we see things that happen to people, we see the injustices. If we turn ourselves away from those things and we don't respond to them, we will become callous. It's like a blister, right? It's very tender to the touch. You can barely touch it. You can feel the pangs, right, of pain as you touch upon it. But if you keep working on that blister, what happens? You develop a callus, and after a while, you don't feel anything there anymore. 
If we see someone who is suffering injustice or they're being oppressed and we see it and our heart is moved to compassion and we do not respond to do something in kind to help alleviate them or to come alongside of them and we keep turning our eyes away from these things, we will become callous to the point that we don't feel it anymore. Solomon, as he looks in this, this was not some king up in his ivory tower. He was down among the people. He saw the oppression and he was moved by this. I tell my sons that if someone strikes you on the cheek, you turn to them the other cheek. But if you see someone strike someone else's cheek, then you do something about it. He saw the innocent people being oppressed by the power-hungry officials. The victims wept, but their tears did no good. He acknowledges the fact that this oppression is everywhere. It is under the sun. Notice how he brackets the section. Verse, four, verse 1 of chapter 4, he begins with talking about that which is done under the sun. Verse 3, he ends with the same line, that which is done under the sun. And it provides an inclusio. It brackets the section. This is his perspective, as Robert said earlier in worship. This is where he is looking at things from. This is a fact of life. I have seen this. This is a part of the grimness of this world. We live in a sinful world surrounded by sinful men we're going to see oppression all around us the question is what will we do when we see it next week you come back we'll look at proverbs and some principles that are given to us and how to respond to these things one of the things that we see around us in the land in which we live is that the way to the top is on the shoulders of others how do you get to the top you step on everybody else to get there. What does Jesus teach us about this? He teaches us that we are to be the ones who are below the bottom rung so people can step on us to climb the ladder. He showed us this by tying on the apron of a slave and washing the disciples' feet, even the feet of the one who is going to betray him. There is a way as believers we are to respond to these things. The question is, is that how we are responding? the way in which God would be glorified or in the way in which we would be glorified. The oppression Solomon acknowledges is variegated as he states in verse 1, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. It's variegated. There's all different kinds. It's not only judicial, it's political. He's going to get to the issue of the kings at the end of chapter 4. There's corruption everywhere in every realm, wherever you look. I'm reminded of 1 Peter because he tells us how to deal with these kinds of situations when we deal with injustice. 1 Peter is an amazing book for me, and, and often those forget to look at the whole entire context of 1 Peter. When you look at the book of 1 Peter, he always picks the worst case scenario. He deals with hostile governments that are oppressive. He deals with the master who is unreasonable and perverse in regards to his relationship to his slaves. He deals with the wife and her unbelieving husband who walks in disobedience to the word of God. He takes all the worst case scenarios and in the middle of all of that, he puts the example of Christ. What did he do? He did not revile in return. He did not speak in his defense. He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously and he bore that injustice. So our suggestion for us as we walk through this is to spend some time looking at Scripture tells us on how we must face injustice in our own life. How do we face the oppression that we experience?
The nation of Israel had an adequate judicial system. It was based on the divine law, but it was a system that can be corrupted just like everything else. This is why Moses told the officials, you need to judge honestly and fairly. The prophets, the psalmists, they cried out about social injustice. And we ought to cry out about these things. But here's the problem that I have with the church sometimes is that they alter the gospel. Started back with Albrecht and it moved on from Harnack and into our present day. We have the social gospel and the social gospel is not good. Because the social gospel does not proclaim a redemption of the individual and transformation of their life through conversion. What it talks about is removing all of the social evils and that is the gospel and that is no gospel at all. But life will be impacted when we are right with Christ and living out a Christ-like life, a selfless life. That is when we will change our neighborhoods around us. But it is about personal transformation and reformation. It is about salvation. It's not simply about equality. So when we see the social injustice, we must respond in a biblical way and we must not distort the gospel to make it fit our surroundings. Solomon had been a wise and just king, but he could not guarantee the integrity of all the officers in his government. No doubt when he walked through the city and he went through the court system and he purviewed all of this stuff and he observed all of it, he saw even his own officials were acting unjustly. They were abusing the power that they had. The reason for this, you may have the best system ever set up known to man, but you still have man and he is corrupt from the inside out. And unless he is regenerated, he will remain corrupt and impact everything around him. Therefore, he will pollute the power he has. He will distort it and he will abuse it. So this is what Solomon focuses on, the oppressor, the power that they have. And this is the tyranny of the oppressor. Power is a reality of life as we exist as human beings. There's always going to be authority. There's always going to be someone who rules over us. God has designed it this way. It is a restraining force within society. But when you put corrupt men in this kind of place of power and authority, they will abuse it if they are not regenerated. And Solomon acknowledges this reality, but... He understands the fact that power can be checked, it can be restrained, but it also can be corrupted, but it is inseparable for our nature and state. The embittering thing about his viewing of these who are oppressed is the fact that the oppressors, he says, have power on their side, which means that the oppressed do not have power at all. They can't do anything about it. Therefore, he reveals that these people are hopeless and helpless. If they simply look at life under the sun, what answers do they have? But he takes our eyesight in chapter 5 and he's going to move it back up to heaven again. And I love how Solomon does this, right? He takes us down into the deep dirtiness of humanity and the sinfulness of it. And then he takes our eyes and he casts them towards heaven and says, that's where the real answers lie. That is where meaning and purpose comes from. And then he takes us down into life again and all the miriness of sinfulness and the oppression and justice. And then he takes our eyes and he moves them back towards heaven again and says, this is where we find meaning and purpose and answers to the dilemmas of our life you will not find it among yourselves you will only find it in God he is the answer he reflects on the hopelessness of them and he says twice that they have no one to comfort them pain is one thing but wrong is another and it's much more bitter when that wrong is injustice 
I had a brother come to me one time and he was talking about 1 Peter and he said, you know, I'm experiencing this in my life. And I said, you know what, if it's something that you do not deserve, right, if it is unjust and you don't deserve this, then entrust yourself to God and he will iron it out. He will bring redress. He will bring recompense. May not in this lifetime, but he will in the end. He will judge both the righteous and the wicked and he will set everything right. But I said, if your situation, however, is a consequence of what you did, then this is just. And you're receiving the consequences of your action and you must repent to God and deal with this. So be sure that we understand the difference between that which is unjust and that which is just. He says the oppression enslaves both of them. And I was thinking about this. This is interesting to me. Both groups are confined to a life of misery. There is no comfort for either one of them. We can easily see this with the oppressed, right? They're characterized by tears. They lack comfort. Twice he says this. But the surprising thing is that if you think about this and as you walk through this passage, we see the same thing for those who are characterized by power. They have no one to turn to, no one to trust. Why? Because they've walked all over everybody else. When you step on everyone to get to the top, when you look back, you have no one you can depend on. You have no one you can trust. Why? Because you have used and abused everyone to get to where you are. You can't even trust people in your own camp. We see this in politics. We see it in the government and it trickles all the way down into the rest of society. They live on an island and someone will finally come along who has more power than they will knock them off the king of their hill. But they have no one to turn to. It's easy to see the bankruptcy of the poor, but we're reminded in Revelation 3.17, the bankruptcy of those who are in power and think that they have no need. Revelation 3.17 says this, You say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You have nothing. And this is God's indictment upon them. Thus we can see man for who he is. He claims to be one thing, but we know he is something other than. So Solomon brings us to verses 2 and 3, and we end with this. The oppression makes death and non-existence look better than life. But this is only so if you're looking at life under the sun. We've all uttered such statements at points in our life when things were very miserable. I wish I was never born. I wish so-and-so didn't have to live to see this. In other words, we're wishing their death so they don't have to see the evilness that exists in the world. Solomon says this is the conclusion that we will come to when we see things only from under the sun, but when we see that there is something beyond the sun, over the sun, and in heaven, now we have hope. Now we have hope. Brothers and sisters, we have hope, do we not? Because we don't solely live life under the sun. We live under heaven, and we know who resides there. Rob, would you close in a word of prayer, brother?